Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And today we're gonna to look at three stories that demonstrate that. But before we get into those stories, if you're a fan of the strange, dark, and mysterious delivered in story format, then you've come to the right channel because that's all we do. And we upload three, four, even five times every week. So if that's of interest to you, please offer to take the like button out on your boat for a scuba diving trip. And once they get off the boat and they go underwater, just turn your boat around and head back to shore. Also, please subscribe to our channel and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of our weekly uploads. All right, let's get into today's stories. A 28-year-old Russian man named Artyom Sidorkin started having severe chest pains. And at first, he tried to ignore it, but it got so bad he could barely stand up, and then he began coughing up blood, and so finally he went to the emergency room. When he got there, even before the doctors examined him or gave him an x-ray, just based on the way he presented to them being pale in the face and hunched over and very sick looking, they assumed this must be something very serious. So that day, they brought Mr. Sidorkin in for an examination, and after talking to him and hearing about all of his symptoms and just looking at him, the assumption was he probably has a tumor in his lungs. And so they sent him in for an x-ray and afterwards the radiologist looked at the x-ray and confirmed that, yep, there is a mass growing inside of your lungs. And so before they went to just start removing huge pieces of his lung, they told him that they would like to do a biopsy where they remove a small piece of the tissue and test it to see if it's cancerous or not. And so Mr. Sidorkin is terrified, but he says, okay, he schedules his surgery. He goes in a couple days later and the surgeon pulls out a piece of his lung tissue and as it's sitting on the tray, he looks down at the tissue, the surgeon does, and he realizes there is something hidden inside of the tissue, as if the tissue was like an envelope holding something inside of it. And so he opened it up, and there, growing on the side of his lung, was a small fir tree. It was five centimeters long, it was green, it looked very lively, it was just a thriving little tree. The doctors believed Mr. Sidorkin, who was a botanist, had inhaled a seed of a fir tree, and it got lodged inside of his lung tissue. And then as it grew, its pine needles began and piercing his blood capillaries, causing him to cough up blood. After the discovery of what was inside of his lung, a spokeswoman for the Royal Botanic Gardens in London said that it is possible for a seed to germinate inside of the dark, damp conditions inside of a lung, but it is unbelievably bizarre. When doctors informed Mr. Sidorkin that he did not have cancer, he had a tree. Mr. Sidorkin was shocked and he said, I never got the sense that there was a tree growing inside of me. But more than shocked, he was just relieved that he was cancer free. There is a picture of this tree inside of his lung tissue, but it's a bit graphic. So if you want to see it, go ahead and Google tree and lung and I'm sure you'll find it. Growing up, Pauline Dakin always suspected that there was just something off about her family. Years later, she would find out she was right. In 1970, when she was five years old, her parents, Ruth and Warren, separated. And to Pauline, it wasn't that much of a shock because her father, Warren, was a heavy drinker and he was extremely violent. But after they separated and Pauline, her mother and brother had moved into another house on the other side of Vancouver, Canada, Pauline noticed her mom started to act really anxious all the time, but she never knew why. When Pauline was nine, her mother told her and her brother that they were gonna go on a vacation to Winnipeg, which is 1,000 miles away from Vancouver. And so they loaded up the van, they hopped in and they drove all the way to Winnipeg. And when they got out, they went inside their new vacation home and Ruth informed her children that they were actually never going back to Vancouver. And when Pauline and her brother said, why dad's still back in Vancouver, I wanna see dad. But Pauline said, sorry kids, this is the way it has to be. And when you're old enough, I'll explain everything. 
Confused and sad, Pauline and her brother began starting a new life in Winnipeg. Over the next four years, Pauline never saw her father and so she lost touch with him. But she started making a couple close friends in Winnipeg and she was starting to feel like this was home. But right as she was starting to feel normal, her mother told her and her brother that they needed to move right now all over again. This time they were gonna go all the way to New Brunswick, the far east side of Canada. Their mother made them swear they would tell no one about this move. But later that day, when Pauline was with her best friend, Wendy, she let it slip that she was moving. And so when Ruth came to pick Pauline up from Wendy's house, the two girls had to affect these sort of breezy goodbyes to each other so that Pauline's mother wouldn't suspect anything. Once in New Brunswick, the family did put down roots and they stayed there for many years. But Pauline's mother still was just incredibly anxious and paranoid about something. The kids just had no idea what it was. Fast forward to 1988, when Pauline was 23 years old, she had moved two hours away from the family home in New Brunswick and was living with her boyfriend and was working as a reporter at a local newspaper. And during that time, her mother called her and said, hey, I'd like to meet you at a motel. I'm finally ready to tell you everything about your childhood. Pauline was really intrigued and excited. This was a conversation that was literally decades in the making. And so Pauline eagerly went to the motel. She saw her mother waiting outside, kind of pacing around, looking very anxious. And so she walks up to her mom and she waves and she's about to speak when her mother just looks up at her and puts her finger over her lips, telling her to be quiet. And then she jams an envelope into Pauline's hands. And on the envelope, it just says, don't say anything. Put your jewelry inside of this envelope. It's probably bugged. I will explain everything inside. Just please don't speak. And so now Pauline's really confused, but she did as she was told. She took her jewelry off, put it in the envelope and gave it back to her mother. And then the two of them silently walked into the motel, into the room where Pauline's mother was staying. When they went inside, there was a man sitting in the middle of the room that Pauline immediately recognized. It was the reverend of their church when they used to live in Vancouver. His name was Stan Sears and Pauline's mother had been his secretary the whole time they'd gone to that church. Pauline always knew her mother and Stan were close friends and in fact had kept in touch after they left Vancouver and were in Winnipeg and then New Brunswick. In fact, Pauline remembers periodically seeing Stan show up in Winnipeg and New Brunswick to visit with Pauline's mother. So it was a surprise, but not a total shock when Pauline's mother confessed to her that in fact she and Stan had fallen in love. And in fact, they had had a secret relationship from the time they lived in Vancouver. But this revelation was nothing compared to what Pauline heard next. Her mother explained that the reason they had had to move so many times during her childhood was because Pauline's father, Warren, was actually a mobster and was a key member of an organized crime syndicate in Vancouver. Right after they separated, Pauline's mother found out she had a hit put on her head because the mob now believed that the husband could not control her anymore and she knew too much. Stan also found out that he had a hit on his head because Ruth discovered that the mob wanted to kill him too because they knew about their relationship. And then also, apparently Stan was counseling a man that was in his congregation that wound up being a mobster. And so the mob believed this man had given up critical information to Stan, making him even more of a liability. At first, Stan said he didn't believe any of this, but when he found out the man he had been counseling had been assassinated, he knew it was true. They decided not to tell the police and instead go into hiding together because Pauline's mother knew what happened to families that snitched on the mob. They were made examples of. And so when Pauline and her family moved to Winnipeg and then to New Brunswick, Stan actually moved there as well in tandem, which is why Pauline had seen him periodically showing up at their house to visit with Pauline's mother. Pauline was understandably completely shocked, 
But at the same time, she was kind of happy to have some sort of explanation for all the strange things that had happened in her childhood. And so over the course of the next several hours, Pauline sat in this motel room with her mother and Stan and asked them every question she could think of. And she discovered that whenever she came home from school and she found her mother furiously pulling all the food out of the fridge and the pantry, throwing it all away with no explanation, that was actually because they found out the mob had tried to poison them. Or the six different times Pauline was unenrolled from the school she was at and then moved to a different school across town, that was because there was a credible threat the mob had discovered where Pauline was going to school. And so by the end of the weekend, Pauline not only learned about this totally crazy past she had, but she also learned that she was still in danger. And so before Pauline headed back home, she asked her mother and Stan what she should do to stay safe. And Pauline's mother said, well, that's actually the reason we called you here now, because after all these years, we were just tired of being in hiding. And so we've already spoken to the authorities and they've moved us into a special witness protection program for families connected to the mob. When you enter this program, it's referred to as entering the weird world, where basically you're not really safe, but you have agents that follow you around that are undercover that track what you're doing and make sure there's no assassination attempt on you. And before Pauline could even ask, her mother told her that as a measure of her and Stan entering the weird world, they asked that a couple of agents monitor Pauline and her brother, even though they didn't know they were being monitored. At this point, Stan reached forward with a radio and he said, here's a radio that actually broadcasts to the agents that are following you pretty much all the time but you should only use it if you're truly in a desperate situation because as soon as you call out for help, there are gonna be people that are risking their lives to come save you. As Pauline is holding this radio, she looks at her mom and Stan and she says, well, what happened to dad? Is, is he in jail? And at this point, Pauline's mother says, no, he's not. He's in the weird world too. And she handed Pauline a letter that was from her father addressed to Pauline. And it basically spelled out that he had been moved into the weird world and he was looking forward to Pauline joining them at some point when she was ready. So now Pauline has this radio and this letter and she's looking at her mother and Stan and she's just totally overwhelmed. And her mother just tells her, go home, think about what you wanna do next. And if you want to join the witness protection program and join the weird world with us, just let me know and we'll make it happen. And so Pauline, who's in a total state of shock, gives her mom a hug and gives Stan a hug and says, okay, bye, I'll be in touch. And she leaves the motel and she gets in her car and she's about to back up when she looks and sees Stan running outside holding something in his hand. And so Pauline stops, Stan runs up to the window and he says, hey, I forgot to give you this. And he held up this round piece of metal that he told her was a GPS transponder. It was magnetized and she should put it out of sight underneath her car. And what it does is it constantly gives off her location to the agents that are following her. So if she was in trouble, it would be easier for them to find her. And so Pauline thanked him, put the transponder under her car and Stan went back into the motel. And so Pauline went back home with the intention of just digesting this information, knowing that she was being watched she had this radio she was you know relatively safe and her plan was to just give it a couple of days before she committed to joining the witness protection program and joining the weird world but after only a couple of days her paranoia was so high that she dumped her boyfriend she quit her job and she moved out of her house into a separate apartment and she called her mother and said i can't take it anymore i feel totally unsafe i want to join the weird world her mother and Stan were delighted at her decision, but they told her it wasn't a simple process getting into the weird world that a lot of people were involved in her basically giving up her old life and entering this new one. And so Pauline's mother told her that she would be in touch with one of her agents and they would contact Pauline when it was time for her to go. And so anxious and scared, Pauline began to wait and wait and wait. And her mother said, oh, just give it some time. They'll be in touch soon. 
but the waiting dragged on for five years. And in that time, Pauline met a new boyfriend, Kevin, who became her husband. And in conversations with him, Pauline started to doubt this whole mafia thing was even true. And so she decided in order to find out if this really was a real thing, that the mafia was actually after them, that Pauline would need to set up a sting operation on her mother and Stan. And so Pauline called her mother and very convincingly told her that, oh my goodness, someone just broke into my apartment. I think it was someone from the mafia. I don't know what happened, but can you tell me what to do? Should I call the police? What do I do? And her mother said, no, don't call the police. Whatever you do, don't call the police. I'm gonna get in touch with Stan and see if he knows what to do. And just a couple of minutes later, Pauline's mother called back and said, okay, honey, I spoke to Stan and he spoke to the undercover agents that sit outside your house and have been watching you for all these years. And they said that yes, unfortunately, not one, but two men from the mafia broke into your house today. But luckily they went up, they grabbed them, they're in custody, so you're safe now. And Pauline said, mom, I made that up. No one's been in my apartment. I've been here the whole day. I lied to you. No one broke in. And it was at this point that Pauline realized her mother and Stan had been living a lie since she was five years old. There was no mafia. Her father was not a mobster in some Vancouver crime syndicate. It was all made up. It would turn out Stan was suffering from something called delusion syndrome, where totally normal people that are totally lucid and have normal lives have one distinct delusion. And sometimes that delusion is not a big deal, but sometimes it is, like they believe the mafia is after them. And during his relationship with Pauline's mother, he passed on his delusion to her through something called folly ado, which translates to madness for two, which is shared delusion syndrome, where someone who's delusional, who's a dominant personality, can pass that on to a subordinate personality. After confronting her mother and then also confronting Stan at a later date, neither of them said, this is a lie, you're right, you caught us, because they believed it. And they took to their graves the belief that the mafia was after them. Their biggest concern after Pauline said, this isn't true, was not that they had been exposed as potential frauds. It was that, oh no, Pauline's gonna expose herself to the mafia because she's not using her GPS transponder or her radio or living in the weird world with us. She's gonna get assassinated by the mafia. And so even though Pauline never got an apology from her mother or got to really talk about the insanity of this whole situation because again, her mother and Stan took to the graves the belief that the mafia was in fact after them, Pauline ultimately made peace with the situation by writing a best-selling memoir called Run, Hide, Repeat. It is linked in the description below. Check it out. In November of 2004, 52-year-old Peter Porco and his wife, 54-year-old Joan Porco, were like so many other middle-aged, middle-class Americans. They lived in Del Mar, New York, in a comfortable two-story home, and they worked for a living. Peter was an appellate court clerk, and Joan was a speech pathologist. They had been married for over 30 years, and they had two sons. Christopher was a 21-year-old student at the University of Rochester, and his brother, Jonathan, was a 23-year-old naval officer stationed at a submarine base in Groton, Connecticut. On Monday, November 15th, 2004, Peter woke up to start his typical Monday morning work routine. He got up, he got out of bed, he went to the bathroom, he relieved himself, he looked in the mirror, he shaved, he got dressed in his work clothes, he went downstairs, he put on a pot of coffee. While the coffee was brewing, he unloaded the dishwasher and then put the dirty dishes into the dishwasher and started it. He wanted to get his newspaper, so he went outside, he got his newspaper, but he realized he locked himself out of the front door, so he got the spare key out from underneath the mat, 
opened the front door, went inside. He sat down, had some coffee, read the newspaper. After a few minutes, he put his coffee cup in the sink. He packed himself a lunch in his lunchbox, and then he headed for the door to head for work. Peter was known as a very reliable employee who was also very punctual and rarely missed work. So when he didn't get to work that Monday morning, the court was a little bit confused. They called him to see if he was okay. He didn't pick up. So they dispatched a court officer to go make sure he was okay. And so the officer arrives at his house. He sees cars in the driveway, the front door shut. He goes up, he knocks on the door, nobody answers. He tries the handle of the front door. He realizes it's open. So he opens the door and he yells out, hey, I'm just looking for Peter. And the door hits something on the ground pokes his head inside and looks down and there on the ground, the thing blocking the door is Peter Porco's body. He's clearly deceased and he clearly has a massive head wound. The court officer steps outside immediately, calls 911, local police show up, they go inside and sure enough, Peter is dead. They go upstairs and they find his wife, Joan, in bed also with a massive head wound, but she was still alive. Joan was rushed to a hospital where she underwent emergency surgery and then was put into a medically induced coma. Meanwhile, the police began their investigation into who could have done this. They quickly discovered that the home's alarm system had been smashed and a phone line, because there still was landlines at the time, had been cut from the outside and a screen in one of the windows had been slashed that looked like the way someone climbed into the house. However, nothing appeared to have been stolen because police almost immediately found Peter's wallet with money inside of it still sitting in the house, as well as very expensive jewelry that belonged to Joan still sitting in the house. As they continued to search the house, they discovered a fireman's axe that belonged to the Porcos hidden inside of one of the bedroom closets. And it was very clear this was the murder weapon. The Porco sons had been away during this attack. John was on his submarine in Connecticut and Chris was at the University of Rochester. And in fact, Chris found out about the attack on his parents when he saw a news report because this story of this innocent, typical seeming American couple in a quiet suburb getting struck down by some ax wielding maniac had gone totally viral and it was all over the news. And so Chris called the police to get more information about his parents' death. Here's the recording. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information for me. Hey, Chris, whereabouts are you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, you're at, in Rochester? Yes. Okay, and you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, dead. I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. So you will be here probably, you're going to go right to Albany Med? Uh, I don't know. I don't even know where my mom is. But yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do, do you know her condition? In no, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. As you can tell, Chris is extremely emotional. He's beside himself. He can barely speak. He's so upset about what's happened to his parents. Now, actually, he sounds as calm as if he's ordering a pizza because Chris Porco was actually a psychopath and he was the one who attacked his parents with the ax. As it turns out, Chris was failing at school and taking out huge loans in his father's name by forging his signature and his father found out about it. So Mr. and Mrs. Porco write their son a strongly worded email where they tell him this behavior has to stop and they're very disappointed in him, but they love him and they will help him get back on his feet. Chris responded by driving home in the middle of the night, sneaking into his house and attacking his parents with an ax. While this case is already disturbing and horrific and tragic, it's what happens to Chris's father after the attack that makes it one of the most brutal cases of all time. After being struck 16 times in the head and laying unconsciously in his bed as his son snuck out of his house, 
Peter suddenly sat up and began his morning routine. He got dressed, he went to the bathroom, he shaved, he went downstairs, he made coffee, he did his chores, he went outside to get the newspaper, he got locked out, he got the key from under the mat, went back inside, he packed his own lunch. When he was finally ready to go, he headed for the door and then he collapsed and he died. Due to the severity of Peter's head wound, his brain was basically broken and it was unable to recognize he had been gravely injured. So in his final moments, he believed it was just a typical Monday morning going about his work routine, when in reality, he had a gaping head wound and he was basically dead after the 16th blow to his head. One of the more surprising and heart-wrenching details of this case is that Joan Porco, she did survive the attack. And after she came out of that medically induced coma, she said she forgot all the details of the attack, even though when she was discovered in her bed, she did indicate that Chris, her son, was the attacker. Nonetheless, she got together $250,000 to post Chris's bail, and she allowed him to come stay with her during his trial. And the two attended the trial together, walking into the courthouse hand in hand. Chris was very quickly found guilty of killing his father and attempting to kill his mother, and he was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. Despite the verdict, Joan Porco still speaks to Christopher over the phone and frequently visits him in prison. It's unclear if she still believes he is innocent. So that's going to do it, guys. If you found the secret in today's episode, let us know in the comments what it is and where you found it. Give us the timestamp. And if you're the first to do that, we'll pin you at the top of the comments section. If you enjoyed today's video and you haven't done this already, please offer to take the like button out on your boat for a scuba diving trip. Once they get off your boat and they're underwater, turn your boat around and head back to shore. Also, please subscribe to our channel and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any of our weekly three, four, even five video uploads. If you want to get in touch with me, you can direct message me on Instagram or on Twitter. My username for both platforms is the same. It's johnballin416. I also have a ton of content over on TikTok where my username is Mr. Ballin. I also started a second YouTube channel called Mr. Ballin Shorts where I post short videos. If you have a story suggestion, please submit it to our subreddit just called Mr. Ballin. It's linked in the description below. So whether I see you on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, YouTube, or some combination. Just know that I really appreciate your support. And until next time, that's going to do it. See ya.